So before I begin, I just wanted to say that uh, you may not be acutely aware of this from the inside, but you've changed. Your faces have changed. They're softer and uh, more relaxed and open. It's really quite remarkable. So this evening I want to say a few things about the first noble truth. You would probably assume that we would tell you about it on the first day, but we didn't want to scare anybody off. (laughs) But it is a very important part of the Buddhist teaching, and I think it's a part that we in the West particularly need to listen to. I'll read it to you. Uh, The first noble truth of dukkha, which I I think Matthew explained that it's quite often in the West translated as suffering, but more accurately it means unsatisfactory with connotations of impermanence, instability, ungovernability. It's dukkha. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Separation from what is pleasant is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. Everything subject to impermanence is dukkha. Everything uh, subject to impermanence, which basically says the whole of existence is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. That is the small print that you didn't read when you signed the lease on life. Basically, what it says is that this incarnation is very fragile and ungovernable, and what we want most is security and fulfillment, and it doesn't really exist in the world as, as we know it. Well, often uh, Buddhist uh, thought and the Buddha is considered negative, like he pre- preaches a negative doctrine, but it can also be seen as realistic, an antidote to the idealistic desires and claims of the human being. This is uh, the Buddha again. The truth of dukkha must be explored to its end. In other words, thoroughly. You really have to look at this and what it's saying. He writes, or he spoke, (laughs) he writes. I wonder if he, you know, scribbled things down. (laughs) He was the Buddha, you know. There There are no statues of him making notes. I The Buddha, it is difficult to shoot from a distance, arrow after arrow through a narrow keyhole, and miss not once. 
It is more difficult to shoot and penetrate with the tip of a hair split a hundred times, a piece of hair similarly split. It is still more difficult to penetrate to the fact that all this is dukkha. We really don't see it, really don't get it. This is Joseph Campbell. The first step to understanding life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and it cannot be changed. Those who think they know how the universe should have been had they created it without pain, without sorrow, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help the world, what you have to teach is how to live in it as it is with the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of how it is. I was relieved when I first encountered the first noble truth. I realized that I hadn't been singled out for special punishment. (laughs) You know, we're, we're all in this together. And misery loves company, you know. So there was a way in which it, it, it was a, a kind of relief. For just a few moments, let's go through, as a kind of group therapy, the facts of life. First of all, you didn't ask to be born. Or at least you don't remember asking. Sometime in early childhood, you kind of wake up and damn, I'm in a life, you know. And and everyone is born with a very powerful survival instinct that makes you want more than anything else to stay alive. So you didn't ask to be born, and you don't want to die. It's like nature trapped you in in this life. You don't get to choose who you're going to be. As I said the other night, you know, You don't get to choose your body, the body you will inhabit. No catalog of choices was offered. You don't get to choose your personality. The geneticists say we're all born with a particular uh, temperament, uh, tendencies to be withdrawn or novelty-seeking, reward-dependent. It's all these categories of of, uh, temperamental... uh, configurations. And the psychologists say whatever part of your personality isn't formed at birth or isn't present at birth will be firmly in place long before you have any choice in the matter in early childhood. Which brings us to the fact that we don't get to choose our parents. The dear ones who will set a lifelong neurosis for us. These are, the, these, these are the facts of life. And we're all born with these, these needs. The, you know, we have to continually uh, feed ourselves to keep this body alive, which we want to do. Uh, we are filled with desire for 
sex, for love, for security, constantly looking for it. It seems like we never can stop and say, yeah, now I'm, now I'm okay, I'm going to be okay. Somebody said, well, if eating was really satisfying, you would only eat once and you would die. And if sex was really satisfying, you would only have it once. And, you know, but uh, it's a constant, it's, it's not the way it's built. It's not the way it's designed. Oh, yes, and then there's, <laughs> then there's aging. I, you, a lot of you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> I didn't understand aging either until I started doing it more often. <laughs> My body actually explained it to me and <laughs> continues to explain it to me. You know, the eyes start to, start to go. You know, my eyes say to me, We've seen enough, you know, it's a beautiful, another beautiful sunset, okay, all right. The senses begin to fade. They begin to actually withdraw from the world to some extent. The energy begins to drop. Ah, my bowels, oh. Do you ever watch the evening news, the half-hour network news that is watched by anybody, everybody over 60 in America It's required, <laughs> over 55? All the products are for bowel trouble <laughs> and, uh, and erectile dysfunction. And The whole system starts to go like on a, you know, into a work slowdown, you know. And then you really start to, to realize you don't have that much time left, you know. Another 10, 15, you know, I mean, the, the, you've been alive a lot longer than you have left. And it's really a shock. Somebody, it was some writer, I think it was Tolstoy, said the most shocking thing in a human's life is when they wake up and realize that they're old. You just don't think it's ever going to happen to you. And then suddenly, there it is. I mean, I don't think I'm going to die anytime soon, but uh, I'm thinking about it, trying to get my affairs in order. I read some someplace that as we age, our hard parts get softer and our soft parts get harder. <laughs> it's just not a pretty picture, is it? It's just <laughs> And as as Kachi will probably attest to, you know, it, it's sort of a long, slow fall as you move towards back to the earth from whence you came. So these are some of the facts of life. This is what, what we get here. And we, we come to the realization, if we have any wisdom at all or have any insight at all, that everything we love will be gone. Everything we love is subject to change and dissolution. And 
And that's just the way it is. And it's often, it seems, that a lot of our suffering arises because we deny the first noble truth. That we think we can find some kind of lasting satisfaction, lasting perfection, security, enough love. It's just, it's just around the corner. I did a retreat at IMS a number of years ago, and uh, Sharon Salzberg was my teacher. And I remember coming to an interview with her and complaining about, uh, you know, troubles. I was grumpy and uh, talking about feeling my age and stuff. And she said, that's dukkha. And I said, so? Where's the fix? Give me, give me, give me the remedy. And then she said, that's dukkha. No fix. No quick remedy. It's just the condition. I wrote in my journal a little while ago something that was very liberating. It said, you don't have to be happy. We've made such a big deal out of this thing, we don't even quite know what it is. What does it mean to be happy? Thich Nhat Hanh says, you don't never, ever know that you're not, you're not happy at all unless you actually know that you're happy, which means you have to check in and say, okay, right now I'm happy. But otherwise, it's you know, a fleeting moment in your life experience. You can feel comfortable and content and full, you know, Dukkha. Our, uh, my favorite uh, philosophers have seen it. I, I really sort of got on the spiritual path starting in college when I started reading the existentialists. Because it, they, what they said resonated with me. They, first of all, they said life is absurd. Universe is absurd. That sounded right to me. Uh, and they said, at least we humans can't understand what we're doing here from the level of consciousness that we have. Um, and they, they, were, they were kind of depressed. I mean, <laughs> they wrote books like uh, Nausea, No Exit, <laughs> The Concept of Dread. That was one of their books. Investigating this, you know, I mean, there was a way in which they were really looking at life, you know, head on in a way that, you know, philosophers of the academy over the years of Western thinking had not looked at, at life. I mean, there were a few, but they were, it was really a whole movement. And I remember Camus, I loved Camus, I memorized a passage, he said, if only I were a tree among trees or a cat among cats, I would be at one with the world. It is this insistence on meaning and reason that sets me apart from all things. 
that this human desire to find some meaning in this existence was actually a curse. It was a wound because you were always outside of the world and wondering how you fit in. You were separated. Many of my favorite artists see it, have seen it clear, clearly. Jack Kerouac, at the end of On the Road, he talks about driving across Kansas or Nebraska, and he, there's clouds, and he sees God's hand coming out of the clouds and pointing at him. He says, go moan for man. Go moan for man. Kerouac. This is Woody Allen. (laughs) Imagine this coming from Woody Allen. I don't feel that I'm pessimistic. I just have a realistic attitude and the hard facts are so brutal and terrifying that each person has their own way of rationalizing that it's not so bad, but it is so bad, and the trick is to acknowledge that and still get through. But there's a, a way in which this first noble truth is really an antidote to the idealism of our civilization and maybe it's just a species-wide wishful wish fulfillment or uh, desire to perfect life in some way and find all the things that you want. But uh, there was a second noble truth and a third one and a fourth one. The second noble truth is really uh, essential, I think, for all of us to also look at closely because it's the Buddha's understanding after he investigated himself and his life and the world and that so much of our suffering comes from an untrained, undisciplined mind, that we are all stuck with this uh, dissatisfaction because this mind continually is feeling uh, needy and lacking and, and wants something to be fulfilled, is never satisfied. He saw that a lot, of it, a lot of it was hardwired. As I said the other night, long before Freud or Darwin, the Buddha saw the power of instincts that we inherit being animals. The, you know, the, sort of the pleasure principle, the desire for pleasant, and uh, the, the, uh, the desire for unpleasant to go away, to not appear, avoid pain. Obviously, this is good for survival. You know, it, it tells us when to take our hand off a hot stove. Uh, 
But so much of our, uh, our desire state is because we don't see clearly the nature of our suffering and the possibilities of happiness uh, by looking at our, at our own mind. And of course, in our culture, we see ample proof of the second noble truth that, you know, uh, the whole civilization runs on desire. We're obsessed with pleasure and comfort. Uh, I saw a Newsweek magazine about a year ago now. The cover story was, What We Will Want Next. The U.S. Constitution uh, protects our right to pursue happiness, which implies that it's out there somewhere we're running away. <laughs> our culture maybe can be summed up by a uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, where Calvin says... Uh, I'm pretty happy. And Hobbes says, but you are, are you ecstatic? <laughs> and Calvin thinks for a moment and says, mm, yeah, I'm not happy anymore either. <laughs> it's, amazing to, it's amazing to watch the mind, you know. It has no shame, no shame at all. Have you ever been somewhere and desired to be where you already were? <laughs> you ever had that experience? Something's always a, could be a little better, you know. And in retreat, in meditation, you can see just how constant the desire wheel is. You know, moving around and, you know, making plans and fantasies and you start to desire the bell to ring. <laughs> and then you, it rings and, and uh, you, the pain, you, you move and immediately you decide you want to go have tea or something. You don't want to go walk or, you know, you go back to your room and look at your stuff for a while or something. <laughs> And you, you, you just, and then it just rolls on through the day. It rolls on through the day. Sokni Rinpoche said, "You got you in the West. You have high class suffering. Your choices are are so many." So we can see the first noble truth as a bit of an antidote to the idealism of our culture. And the, the second noble truth is really pointing to what we're doing here, which is trying to understand how it all works and how we might be able to find a different kind of satisfaction that doesn't keep us always tumbling forward and driven and aggressive and 
unhappy, that we might be able to step back a little bit, settle a little bit. I think meditation, one of the main things it's done in my life is to have brought my my sense of myself down from the story of my life, which is up here, into the fact of my life, which is down here. And there's a lot more satisfaction that comes from just feeling my aliveness and feeling the preciousness of this existence. uh, It's a different kind of happiness. The Buddha said, the highest happiness comes from having a peaceful mind. All the other kinds of happiness, and he did say there was sensual pleasure in life and household uh, delights, and you know, it's not like he denied all that. But he said there's a different kind of happiness, and it's the highest happiness, and that's the happiness of peace and satisfaction because you've, you've tamed that crazy monkey mind. And uh, it's wonderful to have found this, this practice Many people, the vast, vast majority of people, never get a glimpse into some of the places you've been just even in the first, in these four days of being here. I'm sure some of you had at least a few moments where you were present and it was okay. There was not, there was nothing wrong. The, The moment was sufficient unto itself. And just kind of how rich that was. You were just here. A dear friend of many of us, Ajahn Amaro, when he, he's a monk in the Thai forest tradition, when he first came to uh, the West Coast and we interviewed him, he was, he's British, and uh, he said... He became a monk because he was a hedonist. And he saw that they were having more fun than anyone because they were just so light in the world. And Where'd my water go? Here it is. So my word to you is don't forget the first Don't forget the first. I have a whole other uh, (laughs) talk here about temperament that I thought maybe I would do, but maybe I won't. (laughs) No, but I I have some other, other things, and I thought that maybe we'd do it. Q&A, too, a little. All right, I'll do a little bit of this, because it's, it's kind of interesting, and it relates to what uh, Matthew was leading, us, leading one of us in the other day, the hate, the hate meditation. But, um, so this is, I think, really the bottom line of the Dharma and, uh, and all of our practices is learning how to embrace ourselves and love ourselves and through that embracing 
extend, extended to all of us, all of humanity, and that that's really our goal in life. Um, and for some of us, it feels like you know we could never embrace this this being this that we call ourselves, and we struggle to try to change it. I think when I first started practicing, and several others have told me that they had the same idea, that if we meditated hard enough, we could actually become someone totally different. You know, someone who would be easier to live with. But after (laughs) 35, 40 years of doing the practice, most of those people, uh, myself included, basically still the same people we were when we started. (laughs) We may have a little, have softened a little, and we may be a little friendlier toward ourselves and others and, and, you know, changed in in many ways. But the basic personality is still in place. Ram Dass always likes to say that he has the same neurosis he, he had when he was young, uh, after all of his spiritual work, he said. But now, he said, I see my personality as a kind of pet. (laughs) It's always around. I take care of it, you know. But um, it's not who I am. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not who I am. And we all have, you know, we all are human and we get the, the troubles and sorrows and difficulties of all humans. But we all get different proportions of different kinds of difficult mind states based on temperament, based on maybe it's genetics. Um, but every civilization has recognized that people are born with a particular feel to them, a temperament. Uh, uh, the or Greeks and uh, the Greeks thought that people had a temperament or a personality based on the mixture of four humors, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And if you got a lot of phlegm in your mixture, you were phlegmatic, I guess. If you had a lot of blood, you were sanguine, warm. And... Uh, the early Greeks and the Chinese also associated people with different elements. You're stiff like a stick, like wood, or you flow like water, or you're, you know, you bend with with the wind. Um, we've had all these uh, typographies developed over the years. The uh, astrology, of course. And uh, the Enneagram, I think that was a Persian invention, a Middle Eastern invention. What number are you, you know? I'm a, I'm a seven. I tried to have it changed, but it, wouldn't, it didn't work. Um, there's the Disney typology. Dopey, sleepy, grumpy. It works, you know. Some people are dopey. Some people are sleepy. (laughs) Doc. Um, (laughs) 
but now, now the scientists are, are, you know, they poo-poo all those typographies, but they're coming up with their own based on genetic uh, tendencies, on, on uh, genes that select for different personality types. They're looking for four now, and I don't know why they chose these four, but one was uh, uh, novelty-seeking. That was the one that I thought I was. And the novelty-seeking gene has a extra long dopamine receptor and so you know it wants to be excited all the time and Freud would probably have something to say about it too but there's a, a novelty uh, seeking reward dependent pain avoidance and persistence and those are the four that they're looking for genes that select for those four different temperaments um, Jerome Kagan, who was a uh, researcher, at, a biologist at Harvard, did decades-long studies of uh, over time of people and studying their brain chemistry and who they turned out to be. And he wrote in a book called uh, Galen's Prophecy, after many years of studying the origin and nature of temperament, I have become much more forgiving of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily, rise to anger too quickly, or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. He saw that the, these traits, these, te these temperamental types, uh, were long-term, they, they lasted. In Buddhist, uh, in Buddhist schools, there are different types. In the Theravada tradition, our, the tradition that uh, our meditation practice comes out of, uh, we have three types, greed, hatred, and delusion, or greed, aversion, and delusion. You're the, you said you were a delusion, right? Did you, did you announce that in... Huh? Aversion, aversion. Uh, <laughs> It's the deadpan that gets you, you know, it just. <laughs> <laughs> the Tibetans have like five families, uh, and it's a particular energy, but it can be worked, it can be uh, ameliorated or refined and put to good use. So the Vajra family, if you're born in the Vajra family, the diamond family, uh, your energy is, can be sharp and very hurtful, or you can turn it around and make it into penetrating wisdom that cuts through delusion. Uh, Buddha family, ener your energy is open and spacious. Uh, if you don't quite know how to use it, you can be spaced out a lot. If you do know how to use it, you can be living in a, in a spacious mind with a lot of uh, freedom and, and openness. The the uh, the reason I wanted to share this with you is because it's just so so clear that many of us just continue to struggle trying to perfect who we are, make ourselves into somebody different, you know, with a perfect body and a 
calm mind. You know, you, you probably came here thinking that, you know, you might live happily ever after this retreat. I don't want to, you know, break the, burst the bubble, and I want you to keep working hard the next couple of days, so. But it really happens when we embrace our imperfection, our imperfectibility, when we, when we really love ourselves in spite of all of the warts and scars and troubles and crazy minds. And the fact that we're doing this all together and can share, you know, uh, really helps us not to feel like we're the only ones. Um, so there are practices in all of our traditions, all of the Buddhist schools, for dealing with the, our difficult temperamental uh, mind states. Uh, and usually the approach is, and you probably have heard this in interviews with all of us, the approach is to invite the difficulty in and invite it to get big and rear its head. And Speaking of rear its head, in, in uh, some Tibetan schools they have a practice called chod. And uh, there's a woman teacher, Soltra Malioni, who teaches this. She did a She's done many daylongs here. She did a daylong just a little while ago. And it's on this practice of where you imagine cutting off the top of your head and using it like a, a skull bowl. And you put your essence, your essence of who you are into this bowl. And then you turn your difficult emotion, sorrow, fear, anger, into a monster. And you visualize this monster and you invite the monster to come and eat uh, all your essence. To be, in other words, to be as big and as full on as it wants to be, and that's how you get intimate with it, and it loses its power. And uh, she says, uh, "We usually don't feed our demons well enough because we don't like those parts of ourselves." In Chode practice, however, in contrast to killing the dragon, the procedure in the hero's journey, we nurture the demon until the dualistic battle between ourselves and the demon disappears. Brilliant, really. I mean, it's a brilliant psychological understanding and technique. Uh, And they also have these, uh, there's these uh, instructions on how to arouse difficult emotions just so that you can look at them and work with them. Uh, intentionally arousing the difficult emotions. This is from uh, a Tibetan text called The Flight of the Garuda, and I, I was reminded of it when Matthew said, you know, hate, do hate meditation, just hate with all your might. So here's a couple of their uh, suggested practices. At one time or another, all of you have been injured by others. Consciously recollect in detail how they have wrongfully accused you or victimized you, humiliating you, grinding you into the ground, and how you were shamed and deeply mortified. Brood on these things, letting hatred arise. And as it arises, look directly at its essence, at hatred itself. Then discover finally where the hatred comes from, where it is now, where it goes to. Look carefully for its color and shape and any other characteristics. 
Surely the vision of your anger is ultimately empty and ungraspable. Think about your class and status, your race and influence and your wealth. Consider how handsome or beautiful you are and how pleasant and effective your voice. Recall to what extent you are virtuous and, oh, wait a second. No, I didn't want to. That's a nice one. I didn't want to. You can, you can actually arouse positive emotions, as we now know, you know, from meta practice. But All you lovers, think of the beautiful man or woman in your heart. You gluttons, consider the food you crave, meat, cake, or fruit. You strutting peacocks, recall and dwell on the clothes you like to wear. You avaricious traders, think about the form of wealth you desire, heroes, jewelry, or cash. Carefully consider these matters. Allow desire to arise, and when it arises, look directly at its essence, at the greedy and lustful self. Then discover where it comes from, where it is now, and finally where it goes to, etc. So that, I guess that ties back around to the first noble truth learning how to be with all of our human foibles and difficulties. Taste, uh, taste the freedom when you, when you feel it, when you experience it in your practice. Taste it fully, because then you, it'll be motivation for you to continue the practice and, and use it. And let me close with some poetry. I'll share with you a few haiku. I was listening last night to the, to the frogs. Did you hear the frogs? This is a haiku by Kobayashi Issa, my favorite haiku poet, who often writes poems to other species of life, about other species of life and to other species of life, and, and had a very tragic life. His mother died when he was two. He had three children who all died before he did. Uh, but was one of the most playful, beautiful poets and very, very, very well loved in Japan. So this is, here's some Isa haiku. All night, the frogs talk about sex. Out from the darkness, back into the darkness, the affairs of the cat. I'm going out, flies. Relax, make love. Where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. Here's a great image. One human being 
one fly in a large room. Even for the emperor, the nightingale sings the same song. Oh, owl, make some other face. It's springtime. on how to sing, the frog school and the skylark school are arguing. Even with insects, some can sing, some can't. (laughs) And these final two. In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. And I think my favorite of his, this world of ours, walking on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. Let's sit for a moment before we go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.